Hello, everybody. Welcome to the IBM Developer Podcast. We are your hosts, Justin Horsall and Luke Schantz. And today we are interviewing a Matthew Cousins. And Matthew is actually, he's been working for 16 years on IBM Z. That's the IBM's mainframe systems. And Ma- Matthew, where are we right now? Because we're in a special place. Hey guys, and welcome to Poughkeepsie, IBM Poughkeepsie in upstate New York. Thanks for thanks for making the trip up from the city. Yeah, we're very happy to be here. It's a beautiful, beautiful uh, little studio that you have here, or actually big studio, you know, being used to New York City. Everything's so much bigger up here. Um, well, how did you set this up, or who's responsible for this? Well, this is the Mid-Hudson Valley recording studio where we just opened it, and my colleague Jeff Bisty had a big part in putting everything together, so shout out to Jeff, and special thanks to Maria Booney, our site location executive, for making this space happen. Really cool. Yeah, we're very happy to be here. It's absolutely, uh, absolutely beautiful. Now, Matthew, um, apart from working on IBM Z, the mainframe systems, you're now also a developer advocate could you tell us what uh, what is advocacy for you? Because, you know, it's something different for everybody. I'm curious to hear uh, what your take is on it. Yeah, I think part of what confuses people is that developer advocacy is not any one thing. There's a lot of different aspects to it. I can tell you a couple of things we're trying to do. We're trying to first, I think, create a brand awareness or a platform awareness so people understand what is a mainframe. We've been working for a long time in this space with schools, especially, to just create an awareness so that when people are coming out of school and they get job offers and something is for a mainframe, they have some awareness of what that means. And they're not scared because they don't know what it is, right? Right. There's huge opportunities in that area uh, to recruit new people, and, and that's part of what we're trying to do. We're also trying to work hard to support our existing developers, Mm-hmm. They're sort of the unsung heroes. The traditional model of content creation is that you know we create the products we think our customers need and then we sell it to them. Right. And that's sort of come 180 and we are now really working with clients with design thinking and our design teams to create what they need. And developer advocacy is continuation of that where we can support the technical people who are actually coding on the platform as they're exploring new technologies, working with new products, or just trying to get something to work. Great. So a lot of different aspects to it. I'm curious, uh, mainframes, isn't that just another server? Like, wh- why, why should we even care about these things? So mainframes really are just another server, and, and in, in some ways at least. We are... The, the bad boy, if you will, in that we scale like no other platform does. People think cloud is unlimited scale, and that's true in some sense in the sense of horizontal scaling where you just continue adding more and more computers to solve a problem. But mainframe technology with IBM Z and Linux One, we scale vertically. So you have one computer, one one mainframe system, and you just keep throwing more and more work on that one processor. Mainframes are really important to the world because most of our financial transactions run on mainframe backends. So it, those of us who have ever swiped a credit card or booked an airline reservation have used a mainframe system. It's just that they're not the systems of engagement 
right? They're not the system that you're typing on. They're the transaction engine that's running in the background that's keeping your data extremely secure and that's always there. That's what the Z and IBM Z stands for, zero downtime. Is it really zero downtime? Like there's always like 99.99, you know, what, what, what's it like in reality, you know? So the example that I like to use is one that's, that's quite public, uh, which is why it's a good one to use. Visa has come out on record that they have had over 20 years without any downtime by running on the IBM oh, wow. Z platform. So just imagine, right, my laptop I reboot, you know, once a month or something. Um, used to be worse when I was using a different operating system and I would reboot daily. You can't do that if your business, like a big bank or a credit card processor, who's getting, you know, hundreds of thousands of requests a second, maybe peaks of a million trans a second. You can't shut your systems down in the middle of Black Friday. You need them to keep processing, fulfill orders, and, you know, meet your, your customers' expectations. Because in today's world, with computing in our hands, with our mobile devices, expectations are higher and higher that things will respond fast. I know I have forced closed several applications because I've waited two seconds, and that's just two seconds yeah. too long. You can't do that uh, with these transactions. So that's a little of, of why I think uh, mainframes are, are important to people and why people should be interested in them. Why are you interested in them? That, that's, that's what I'm curious about. At heart, I, I'm a computer geek. Uh, you know, I, I started uh, really fourth grade where I, I, I met my grandfather's PC Jr. and I was just really intrigued by knowing how this thing works and can I make it do what I want. I'm fascinated by the technology that's behind our, our platform, our, our Z and Linux One boxes. You guys saw some of that on display here in Poughkeepsie with the, the plexiglass machines as you walked in. We have an attention to detail on our components that you just don't find in commodity PCs, right down to really nicely braided cables that are you know in the machines. We have redundancy, re- resiliency built into every layer of hardware to the point where just about everything is hot swappable. Mm-hmm. You can keep running while you're changing parts. And if, if customers want, they can run production while we're doing that. There are customers that do that. I'm a software guy, so I've always been fascinated by the software. And you know, how does that work, right? How do you change the tires on a car as it's mm-hmm. traveling down the road? The, the road? And um, that's part of why I really like doing software tests. I've worked in I think every phase of software test on uh, ZOS, which is one of the operating systems that runs on IBM Z. And I, I did it because I like to un- understand how it works and make the product better for our customers by taking some of the early versions that don't work so well and beating them and breaking them, helping the developers fix them, give the developers feedback on design and so forth. And that's why I think developer advocacy is also a good fit for testers, by the way, because testers are always natural advocates for our customers, for our clients. Now that's my main job is advocating for for our developers who are one set of clients, right? And how long have you been doing advocacy uh, so far? So this is a new job to me. I just started in February, so that's uh, just a couple of months. I'm almost three months into this role. It's been a fast and furious journey to discovery and learning, um, but it really is amazing to actually interact with people 
get yourself removed from the bubble of your office or your your lab. Talk to people that are using your technology or not. Maybe they're mm-hmm. they're using other technologies, and you know relate to one another on on that sort of ones and zeros level of what are you doing, what is the company you work for trying to do with technology, what are your pain points. Oh, I, I know exactly what you mean. Here's here's what I was doing when that happened, and here's how we solved that problem. So it's been a, a pretty rewarding couple of months. I can't wait to see what the next year or so holds because I think there's a lot of really good stuff coming. How has it been different uh, compared to uh, what you thought initially? Before you got into it, you are like, you know, is it, is it glamour and travel and, and all that kind of stuff, which uh, you yeah, so outside, you know? I think those of us who don't travel a lot think there's glamour and travel. It's still your body that's, you know, making the journey. It's still your time. It's, you know, when everything goes right, when travel is at its finest, it's still a long process. Uh, it's still, you know, complicated with security and still not, not all that fun sometimes. I think this job's pretty much what I expected it to be. The reason that is is because I talked to a lot of people before mm. getting into this role because I think there's very little understanding actually of what developer advocacy is right. in the mainframe community, and I didn't know anything about it. That's what drew me to the job. I saw the title, and I, I did not know what that was. I started. I read the abstract of what it meant, and it was intriguing, something different that I'd never seen before. So I, I think it's pretty much matched my expectations so far, but I am just sort of getting into things, and I'm sure the role will expand and contract and shift moving forward, too. So we'll see, you know, see what happens. Was there any one aspect of the role that kind of drew you into advocacy? I've always been very interested in how the technology that I work on is used. If you think of it from a business sense for a minute, there's no sense making a product customers aren't going to buy. But that's not really what pushed me in the past. What what I've always been interested in is the, the geeky side of it. It's just, you know, what do people do with this stuff? How does it work in their environments? You know, starting even as a tester, I was a client advocate. Uh, I guess technically I still am. Uh, we call them lab advocates or client advocates. And this is just sort of a natural extension of that. What has surprised you in people's response to hearing about Z and, and mainframe technology um, is there anything that, that sort of sticks out? The thing that sticks out to me the most is just how life is cyclical and so is technology. And what I mean is people are, are doing things today with cloud and open source that they think is new and exciting, and it is, but it's also very similar to things that we've been doing for 30 years. It's a new iteration on it. We have operating system, for example, that runs on Z that ships still today, I think, as source code. So it's not open source. It's a you know licensed product. But customers take that source code and modify it, which is why we ship it as open source. They have for years. They need to keep doing that. So I was at a conference where we're talking about the, the cloud concept of failing quickly, you know, being able to shoot one of these cloud images and just have it die and then the work continues on your other machines that are running, well, that same operating system I was just talking about is built around that. Mm-hmm. Fail quickly, come back up quickly, as opposed to ZOS, which is always stay up, yeah. right? It's, don't fail. Mm-hmm. Two different paradigms. 
it's it's really been interesting to see how we are still solving the same problems just in different ways. The cloud stuff, I think, is a lot more approachable for people. It's got a much nicer look and feel to it by modern standards. I can see why it's fun and exciting, and I, I geek out about it too. Don't get me wrong. But I think there's something in a platform that's just last week 55 years old. And if you've done something for 55 years and survived and you're still relevant, you're still relevant for a reason, and that's because you're doing it well. We've learned a lot, and I think uh, if we could only all work together and apply some of the things that we've learned in mainframe land to some of the stuff that the cloud environment is still learning – Wouldn't it just work so much better for everybody? You mentioned open source being involved in the the system. And that doesn't surprise me, but it kind of does surprise me because I feel like people think most things on enterprise are going to be proprietary. But is open source a big part of uh, what goes on with mainframes? Open source is a big part. It's a growing part. And in a sense, I'd say if you're looking from a perspective of where technology was at the time, the mainframe was sort of built on it. When the mainframe came into existence 55 years ago, the the real selling point was clients could create software, create their products on this platform. They would continue to run unchanged. Mm -hmm. And today, if you have a program that's 55 years old, it would still function on today's hardware. And certainly, we have clients running programs that are 20 years old or older. There was no open source 55 years ago, right? What there was was a, a market where every Every different product creator had their own operating system, which weren't compatible. So every product had to be customized for that environment. And and IBM created the mainframe, and we said, no, we'll continue to run. Fast forward many decades with Linux. Linux has always been a big play for us, a a big product, a a big offering in our our Z and, and now our Linux One systems. And the open source world, I'll say, is, is really expanded on Z with all kinds of offerings, uh, analytics offerings with Apache Spark. We have a, a new really exciting offering for, for Z clients, uh, which is Zoe, Z-O-W-E, which is a, a really fun, exciting interface into the mainframe, very modern it's the first time that we've gotten together with other companies, and we're really working as a community, I'd say, uh, to create this framework that other people can build on. And that was just released last year, really, I think, is, is the future for us. So open source is, is a big part, and customers run lots of open source in enterprise computing. So obviously, they have to be able to run it wherever they need to and wherever they want to. And they can easily run it in, in Linux One or in IBM Z. Or both. It's really interesting how you mentioned that it's a community development across the customer and the developer. And the traditional model is like you make something and hope somebody wants to buy it. Whereas now it's it's much more about really understanding, right, and empathizing. And you know, I, I know how advocacy fits into cloud, but now as you're telling me this, I can see how advocacy fits into an enterprise ecosystem as well. And it really is an ecosystem and a, a conversation happening, right? Absolutely. And across multiple companies, across people all over the world where we, everybody can contribute. So if there's a product, you know, a plug-in, whatever you want to call it, that's, that's in that framework that's close to what you need, well, you can extend it, right? You can do a pull request. You can provide your changes to the community, and those changes are reviewed by the community. So really there's security built into every step because they're being scrutinized. 
And the technology is sort of enabling the sense of community that we've always had in, in the mainframe world because we can all work together on this now. Um, so, so absolutely, it's a fun, exciting area. What about technologies that are kind of like blowing up all over the the rest of the world? Like blockchain is a is a huge one. Is how is that working out with mainframe technologies? Is that being picked up or you know? Yeah, blockchain is a great example of a technology that runs on Linux One. It's underpinned by our most secure hardware, software, and most secure environments, and totally consumable by the end user, by the people that are actually provisioning it in the cloud. They don't know they're touching a Linux One system, a mainframe system per se. So that's a great example of new technology meets old technology. And it's also an example of what I think is really the most exciting area for us, which is in the security realm, Mm -hmm. um, which is what we call a um, secure service container. I call it a secure computing enclave or uh, what it is is a completely secure environment that you can put stuff in and do what you want, basically. Right. And uh, we offer it with our HyperProtect services in IBM Cloud. I'm not going to get into all of the, the little acronyms and stuff. The, the general premise is this. There's no other platform that provides, I'll just call it level four encryption, right? So other cloud providers will have encryption available, sure. It's certified to level three standards, mm-hmm. If you're in that cloud, you can't get level four standards because their hardware doesn't support it. But ours does with Linux One, with Z. And it's something that that we've we've met those standards for for a long time. It's uh, something that banks look for, governments look for, for their, their most secure and sensitive work. In today's cloud where you're using a computing environment that's on somebody else's computers. Mm -hmm. They can physically touch what you put in there. They administer that environment, so presumably they could look into, you know, your environment, your Linux. They could maybe log into your Linux, whatever. That won't work with these secure containers because everything is encrypted and they don't have the keys. Mm -hmm. So they will not be able to look at your data They won't be able to read it in consumable format, right? It'll be encrypted. And it really levels the playing field so that we can continue to keep those really high standards of safety, security, auditability, you know, all the stuff related to that, but yet use the public cloud, use the advantages of easily provisioning environments and everything the cloud has to offer. And I think that's what the enterprise demands is enterprise computing relies on protecting their secrets, not letting stuff get out. Sort of the old days that was by securing your data center and not letting anybody in the door. And, you know, then we needed to put firewalls in place because there's this thing called the Internet out there. And now people could get in more easily, you know, digitally. And now with the cloud, we're actively putting our stuff on other people's systems. So how do we protect it? With Z especially – the answer is encrypted. See, in Linux One, you can encrypt at scale the data in flight and at rest. Nowhere else can hit the kinds of volume that we can handle with our crypto coprocessors and accelerators and all of the stuff that the hardware team works so hard to build and the software team works so hard to enable. I think really that's our exciting area uh, 
from a consumability point of view, I think it's it's interesting. But from a geeky point of view, I think it's really cool. That is really interesting. And the picture you just painted there, I'd like to ask you to maybe expound on a scenario where a company would be using hybrid cloud. A mainframe is going to be great for those super high security situations, right, where you need that and you need to be able to scale vertically. So this would be for your actual bank account information and the credit card transaction. But then the companies are also using public or private cloud services for maybe scaling out their app. But then that is communicating with these more secure services. Companies are able to use all of the, you know, the legacy and the modern tools together in this this seamless way now. Right, exactly. So one of the challenges, I think, with cloud is the latency that's built into accessing the cloud. Because in the hybrid cloud, some of the computing happens in your environment, and some of it happens in the cloud, and you have to get back and forth. So with some of the offerings we have, you can sort of combine the two and either operate in that hybrid world or with IBM Cloud Private, you can bring some of those cloud pieces on-prem and eliminate some of that latency time to get back and forth. Probably or maybe one of the misconceptions is really what what we do, you can do on-prem or in the cloud more and more. Customers kind of get to pick and choose what they want to do. Does it make sense to do some stuff in the cloud and on a public cloud using some managed offering? Does Does it make sense to do some things on-prem? Certainly, a lot of those decisions aren't necessarily technical decisions. They're driven by business regulations. But I think more and more, they're able to a la carte it, if you will, and and pick what they want to use. I'm not sure that answers your question, though. I think it did. And it is really fascinating because I remember just a few years ago, I would have said I was in the you know infrastructure as a service game. In a very short period of time, within five years, we've seen so many new technologies become prevalent quickly. But I want to echo what you had mentioned earlier, and they're actually a lot of times using a very similar pattern or solution. I remember back in the day, you would use immutable images for your VMs, and this was a great way to manage your infrastructure, and now we're doing the, you know, the same thing with containers. Exactly. One thing I think is always interesting, just based on my background, when people start talking virtualization, all that virtualization technology was created for mainframe, back when mainframe was the only computing platform there was. So that's really why I love doing what I'm doing, because we have such a rich environment of creation of all this cool technology that we're building on today. So VMs, or whether we call them VMs, like Linux VMs, or whether we call them LPARs in the terms of ZOS, where they're logical partitions, they're self-contained systems that all reside on one piece of hardware but don't know each other are there. They're, they're virtual computers. We created that for, for mainframe technology. We created uh, what we wrapped around it, and we're still building on today. When the data center on the West Coast is hit by some natural disaster, the data center on the East Coast automatically fails over with no human interaction and zero data loss. For people that work in the space, even work with technology, I think we can appreciate that's really hard to do. And it takes a lot of really talented people to pull that off. Our clients have some amazingly skilled people that put all these products together and test the solutions and and make it work. And I just love that we've created that over the years and we're continuing to build on it. And it's more relevant today than it was when we created it. Totally. You kind of get to play with the future a little bit, you know, with with these mainframes. Get to to touch technology that a lot of the rest of the world won't touch uh, for the next years. 
Absolutely. And some of this I'll put it in perspective. My my old job, I was told by our most senior technical guy at the time that I was working in a $100 million environment, nothing but test. You don't get that anywhere else in the world. Clients certainly don't invest it to create that kind of environment. It, it, it's just a really special thing to be able to work with this technology that's so critical. And because it's critical, it's expensive to build it. So therefore, it's expensive to sell. We almost take it for granted that we have this hardware sitting there. Um, we have the opposite problem as some customers. Typically, you know, customers build environments that they spec them and they, they build them to match what they need, the capacity they need, and they operate them the way the production comes in and they work at that scale. In tests, we have the opposite problem, which is we get maxed out systems that we now need to consume all the resources that we have available. And how do we do that? Oh, my goodness. You know, how are we ever going to grow into this monster machine and keep it all moving? Certainly, customers don't worry about driving more work, right? right? Yeah. They, they, they want to drive more business for them, which, of course, will bring more work into their environment. So those are a couple of reasons why I've loved tests, especially on the mainframe. How do you do that? Do you just mine a bunch of crypto? Uh- <laughs> <laughs> No, that, I, I'm pretty sure that would violate our rules. <laughs> okay. There's a lot of different ways we do it, and it depends on the focus of the teams that are doing it. But in my last job, for example, we ran workloads that were designed to work like client workloads. Yeah. In some cases, we actually went out to the clients and worked with clients. We would never pick up their, their code or certainly not their data. They wouldn't offer it, and we didn't want it by any means. Yeah. But what we did is we worked to understand the application flow and what products were involved and, you know, the life of a transaction. How does it come in and how does it bounce around different systems? Yeah. What's a representative data model for the data that you're using? And then we would bring that back and engineer our own solutions that would fit into our environments, work to scale them, work to tune them, and then run them 365 days a year as much as we possibly could with everything else going on in, in that test environment. Really cool. And you said that programs have been running for 25 years. Um, you say you've been working with open source for a long time as well. I'm curious, as far as you know, one of the most popular programming languages. For- this is a question I get a lot when I'm out of talking to people. And what I tell people is that programming languages are programming languages, right? right? So it doesn't really matter what platform you're running on. Students especially are really interested to know, well, what programming language do I need to know to be successful? Yeah. And the answer is, well, as long as you understand programming, coding, it doesn't really matter what what language you know. But let me answer your question directly. Probably the preeminent programming language in the business world today is still COBOL. And, I mean, there's hundreds of millions of lines of COBOL I've seen by some estimates that are mission critical that still run today. There's a lot of effort to modernize those things because, as you can imagine, these programs do not stay stagnant. We're constantly adding yeah. uh, adding to them, changing. A lot of customers, and ourselves included, are, are looking to make it easier to make changes, mm-hmm. be able to react faster to market demands, client demands. And so there's a huge effort underway in the industry to modernize applications. There's different techniques that, that people use, different solutions, products uh, that they put in place to do that with. Java is a huge programming language. It's one of the legacy programming languages that most people don't realize is is legacy. I was just talking to somebody not long ago, and I I think I kind of 
drove home how old I am when I when I said, yeah, I remember when Java was introduced and somebody told me it would replace Microsoft Windows. And I was just thinking, uh, Windows is an operating system and Java is a programming language. But, you know, I, I guess I was right, but it just drove home the point. People really thought Java was a silver bullet. And it, it's still a very vibrant area. It's getting modernized, changed, added on to every day, every every release. It's something that runs well on Z and Linux One. We are continually optimizing hardware to run Java. We create machine instructions for Java to make it faster. It's something that if done right, you can write once and run on any platform. I think you know those of us who actually work with Java know sometimes you, you have to make changes even though you're coding to the JVM. Java's not always Java, if you've heard that phrase. Yeah, right, once, test everywhere. Yeah, so, so that's COBOL and Java. And certainly, uh, you know, C, C++ are there for other kinds of things. More exciting is the new stuff that we're supporting in mainframe land with Swift and Go and, and some of this. There's a, a lot of thought put into allowing application programmers who write front ends in Swift to be able to write the back end in Swift as well. So we have support in place to do that on mainframe. So I almost laugh a little bit when people are thinking, oh, the mainframe's COBOL. Well, okay, COBOL is certainly a big part of what runs, but it's so much more available and there's so much more out there. Here in, in Poughkeepsie, um, there's a lot of low-level programming going on because we write the operating system, ZOS. There's a lot of people that left the industry and, and they, they say, oh, I miss assembler. Like there's, there's still assembler programming going on in these hallways. doesn't get much lower than that. I guess there's a little bit of everything is my point. That's really cool. I had no idea that there was still so much COBOL alive, uh, alive and well. It seems like the COBOL programmers are dying off. This is one of the reasons why there's such a tremendous opportunity. It's what we call maturing workforce. Mm-hmm. It's an industry-wide phenomena that's going on. Um, huge demand for students with any kind of mainframe awareness, mm-hmm. let alone experience, or even expertise. Um, and we have a, a contest that we run. We created it, I don't know, about 16 years ago now. I was part of the, the small team in Poughkeepsie to create it called Master the Mainframe. It's a competition we run that started as a very small thing. It's for students to be able to get onto our mainframe environment and experience what the mainframe is, learn about it. It's now a huge force to be reckoned with. Mm -hmm. And there are people competing internationally. I think we've had two world championships for Master the Mainframe. It's something that employers look for on their resumes, believe it or not. It's really exciting to see it grow, to know where it came from. And uh, I mean, we're now even issuing digital badges, which you know didn't exist when we created it. And it's a great way for students to get a little hands-on experience, no experience necessary. It starts with literally uh, step-by-step instructions on how, what to do and uh, explains what you're doing, why you're doing it, and gives you a little bit of the background. I guess they're dying off well. Yes, it creates opportunities for other people, huge demand. Maturing workforce is is something. And and, and really, I'll tell you, every client on mainframe is concerned about skills. And my sister team now is is focused on nothing but skills, trying to build out the ecosystem. I'm part of the ecosystem team around the mainframe to support people who are on it now, to work on the pipeline 
for people who can start taking some of those jobs soon. It's really heartening to hear that because uh, I know some of the most fulfilling work I do is with like college hackathons and you really see the importance of being a good business and corporate citizen and being involved in and really treating it like an ecosystem and having that a little bit longer term vision and paying it forward because the reality is not just in what we're doing, but as as a society and, and globally, we really do need to invest in education. So we have these, you know, new collar jobs. It's interesting to to hear that actually outside of all the hype you hear about what's the popular technology and what's cool and what is the real reality of getting jobs out there, what are the real uh, skills that are needed. You had mentioned Java is still so popular, even though it, you know it's been around a while. That was, I guess that was more of a comment than a question, really. I, actually, I, I'd like to shift gears here. I want to uh, maybe ask you a little bit about your your origin story. You've been working on mainframes for sixteen years, but how did you sort of get interested in tech? What what, what is the story here? Uh, you tell me. Yeah, I give you a little tease of that already. I guess with the PC Junior comment, I really fell into it, if you will, because I graduated with a CS degree without any mainframe or testing experience. And somehow I ended up testing on mainframe and really enjoying every minute of it. I I tell people probably I wouldn't exist if it wasn't for this place. I'm making a gesture here to to IBM Poughkeepsie because my grandparents actually met right here at IBM Poughkeepsie. This was a time when um, there weren't a lot of women working. So, you know, kudos to IBM. I'm appreciative because I am here. I was just showing someone earlier today my grandfather's uh, IBM Endicott badge from the early 40s. Um, so my, my grandfather worked at IBM Endicott and then IBM Poughkeepsie, and he had a 40-year career here in Poughkeepsie. Uh, he retired in the early 80s. I grew up in this area and fell into computers, just got I, – I loved it, just trying to figure out how to make them work. In Poughkeepsie, if you're going to work with computers, this is the best place to do it. And it's just something that – I love, I and I, I think I've thrived here because of the focus, almost fanatical focus on quality, on resiliency, because of what we do is important. So it's not like you can reboot it. It needs to work. Testing l- allowed me to, to break it, fix what didn't work, or help other people fix it, really, um, and also see the issues that clients are experiencing and recreate them and really feel like I'm contributing to the greater good. You know, it's a weird feeling after being here for so many years that, you know, I am the, the IBM or working with the, the apprentices from Marist College. To me, not that long ago, I was that apprentice. You know, now I'm the other guy. I don't think I really look any older, by the way, but I don't have blonde highlights anymore. They're, they're like grayish, if you will. Um, so, you know, that's, that's a little bit about how I, how I got here kind of unknowingly. <laughs> it worked out, though, didn't it? So your grandparents were uh, met here. Do you have other people in the family that work for IBM as well? My great-grandfather actually worked in Endicott with my grandfather way, way back. I come from a line of educators, actually, and I think that's part of the reason why I like advocacy because right. it's yeah, teaching. Yeah. I like sharing with people technology, explaining how things work, and explaining it in an example that's relatable mm-hmm. What to the level of – the person that I'm talking to. So if I'm talking to somebody that's highly technical, you can get right in there with them. But if you're talking to someone like a student in, in middle school, you can 
just use some examples and drive home the same uh, concepts, right, just at, at different levels of detail. Now, talking about education, Luke, and importance of it, I mean, I remember in elementary school, IBMers being in our classroom. So IBM has always had a presence here in Poughkeepsie, Dutchess County, New York, and there's always been a focus on education in IBM and to the point where we pay employees, give them time to go out into the community and help you know kids understand technology. I am now a mentor for the P-Tech Newburgh School. My mentee is wrapping up what we call year three. He's going to basically be a senior in high school next year. The P-Tech program is sort of a blend of a traditional high school and an associate's degree. So we don't call them juniors or seniors. They're year one, year two, year three. And he's already doing college classes. So by the time they graduate, they graduate with their high school degree and an associate's degree for no cost. And we have IBMers in Poughkeepsie paired or partnered with all those students at P-Tech Newburgh. And there's that same commitment all over the country. The program's now international. And it all started right in Brooklyn, believe it or not. And the first school's in Brooklyn. It's still going strong. I was lucky enough to go there once. And, um, you know, I think if we can, as technical people, if we can explain technology to kids and get them excited, first of all, they energize us. But it keeps us sharp enough to be able to explain tech, this really intricate technology to those people that need to know more more details, right? Um, somebody told me, I think I was 16, if you can relate to kids, you can relate to anybody. And uh, I, I think that's very true. I'm, I'm fortunate enough I can do some of those side, side jobs during my, you know, my career. All right. So we've heard a lot about mainframes, but what if they all stop working today? Somebody pulls the plug. We don't know why. What would the world look like? Well, I'll tell you, all the mainframes, all of our clients suddenly stopped work. Um, so imagine for a minute, you know, you can no longer use your credit cards. Uh, so in this, you know, cashless society, you can't buy anything, right? Um, Imagine that you can't access the money in your bank account because the, the bank's servers, the mainframes, um, can't process the transaction, can't look up your balance, can't reserve airlines because, yeah, their systems are down too, right? Things like uh, insurance policies, right? We can't issue new insurance policies. Um, one of the, the stories, uh, one of my colleagues at a previous job said was, you know, a client once said to them, you know, if the system doesn't work, you know, for for X number of time, you know, there'll be about six children that we can't pair up for adoption. So so we're so ingrained to think about the financial industry and those kinds of those kinds of hits. Right. But, you know, imagine for a second, you know, there's somebody who had some kind of emergency, they're wheeled into the ER and their medical records are nowhere, to, you know, not nowhere to be found, but yeah. you can't access them. Uh, server processing, please wait, and the information's not loaded, right? So we don't know what kind of medications they're on. We don't, we don't know any of that stuff. The, the aircraft that are in the air with 
I just heard from uh, someone from American Airlines at a conference last week where, where they said the population in the air at any one time is more than the number of people in some small countries. So all those people are above our heads and the systems for landing the flights and for takeoffs and uh, fueling them and all that can't be processed. So it's a little different than just site can't be found or uh, why why is my Minecraft taking so long to connect to the server? This is uh, really important stuff in terms of, you know, just human lives. Uh, really important stuff. It's, it's as critical as the oxygen in, in a lot of ways uh, to modern society around the world. And I, I think that's what what draws me to it the most is, uh, you know, let's work with something. I, I want to work with something that's that's important and I can geek out on on a, on a technical level. Also, that has a lot of history behind it um, because it's I'm working with something that's larger than I am. I know that probably sounds pretty corny, but, you know, there's there's stuff that we're working with today that somebody 30 years ago worked on, maybe longer than that. We're keeping that legacy alive and you'll find that that spirit in like every mainframer you encounter, regardless of what company they work for. We keep building on on that legacy to keep these systems going. And now I get to do that by talking to a lot of people about this, really explaining it, driving it home, and sort of showing them that all the stuff that they're working on in, in these cloud environments is really cool, really interesting. But sooner or later, you got to get your data from somewhere. And the number changes every year. Something like 85 90%, 95% of the world's data resides on IBM Z systems. Wow. Business data in data centers is what we do. We keep it secure. We can process it at the scale of enterprise, which is a huge volume. Yeah, you can certainly put layers and layers and layers in front of it, but sooner or later you need to get your data from somewhere. And chances are that data is coming from IBM Z. So if, uh, if we switched off all the mainframes in the world with a single light switch, uh, the world as we know it would, would change rapidly. Sounds like, uh, sounds like a good premise for a movie. Too bad uh, World War Z is already taken, right? Um, <laughs> thank you so much for, uh, for listening. Um, if you want to check out uh, some of the work that we're doing, um, go to developer.ibm.com. Also, uh, go to meetup.com and type in IBM Developer. There's probably meetups uh, close to uh, close to where you're at. And, um, yeah, Matthew, uh, Master of the Mainframe, where can people come find that? Is that uh, still something people can access? Yes, absolutely. So masterofthemainframe.com, mm-hmm. certainly the IBM.com pages for IBM Z, IBM Linux One. We also have something called the Linux Community Cloud where people can – actually go and provision an instance on Linux One. Uh, we have a couple of different sites where those machines are physically in, in the world, but um, it doesn't matter because they're in the cloud. Mm-hmm. You know, People can, can provision a, a Linux instance running on Linux One and actually experience what it is to run an enterprise Linux. Probably a great way to get started. You certainly, anybody that's interested uh, can contact me. I'm on Twitter. It's uh, at Cousins Matthew. My last name's C-O-U-S-E-N-S. We throw the E in there just to confuse people. Uh, Matthew with two Ts. Uh, so, you know, shoot me a direct message or whatever, and um, I'd be happy to, to talk to anybody that's interested.
Very cool. And um, I heard another good podcast to listen to is the Terminal Podcast. Is that correct? Yeah, Terminal Talk. It interviews a lot of the people in the mainframe industry, uh, regardless of what companies they're, they're working for, a wide range of expertise. It's always interesting to me to listen to, you know, the, the story sort of back in the day, you know, 30 years ago. So that's Terminal Talk. Uh, you can find it in your, you know, your favorite podcast platform. It's out there. And there's other podcasts like that uh, that are trying to bring Z content out and make it consumable for people. A lot of good ways for people to follow up. Amazing. Thank you so much, uh, Matthew Cousins. And uh, we are your hosts, Justin Horsell, Luke Chance. And Luke Chance is also the producer of this uh, amazing podcast. Hope to catch you next time.